You are listening to the Coggin Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. In the midst of loneliness and dissatisfaction, Coggin wants to help you learn God's truth in a supportive community that pursues a full life in Jesus. If you want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, I pray you bring it with you every week. Let's open it together to the book of Job as we continue this wisdom series. This is the last wisdom book we'll be looking at together. And then, oh wow, just a fantastic Christmas series that is coming. And then in the new year, three services. I mean, wow, we're just so excited. This Sunday, though, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, as we look at wisdom I believe, tested and proved. Now, now the picture I, I want to paint for you this morning as we, begin, as we begin, it comes from a phrase. And the phrase is shock and awe. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Well, what comes to your mind when you think shock and awe? Well, it's in the military context, so maybe a battle or some war scene. When I think of shock and awe, I think back to that second Gulf War when we invaded Iraq in 2003. How many of you with me watched on CNN literally as the shock and awe campaign was brought to Iraq to the capital city of Baghdad? Do you remember those, those shots, hours of footage, bombs raining down like it was the 4th of July? I mean, it was just lit up. And what did we want to do? Well, we wanted to provide something called rapid dominance, which is achieved through shock and awe. And what you want to do there, if you're a military force like we were, the American forces, you want to provide so much military might and military power in a short amount of time so that the enemy does what? I give up. And they turn and they quit. And that's what happened in Iraq. And it's not new from the American military forces. We've seen it through the Romans. They employed this many times. We've seen it with Sun Tzu, right? He's a lot to say about war. We've even seen it with the Germans. They didn't call it shock and awe. They have their own term called Blitzkrieg. If you do any studying about the world wars, you see Blitzkrieg. Now, you may not just see it on the battlefield, but you might see it on a Friday night, right? You're like, what? Yeah. You might see it on a, a Saturday afternoon. Is that starting to click yet? Or maybe you'll see it from the Cowboys today. That word blitz, when the defense tries to overwhelm the offense with such power that they just kind of give up, it comes from the word blitzkrieg. It's a shock and awe campaign, if you will. Well, as we turn to Job chapter 1, let's bring it back to the scriptures. It's hard to transition from football to the scriptures, but you can do it. Do it with me. Here we go. As we get back to Job chapter 1, I believe what we see is Satan employing a shock and awe campaign in the life of Job. Yes, allowed by God, but Satan hoped it would produce him giving up, not just in life, but more satisfying to the enemy, that Job would give up on God and curse him. Oh, I, I love the book of Job for this reason. Because I think Satan's in the same business today that he was thousands of years ago. He wants to see the shock and awe provided by suffering and hardship and turmoil in your life, in your life cause you to give up and turn on and even curse God. Nothing would make Satan happier in this holiday season but to see you give up on the king of the universe through some trial or tribulation. 
Oh, but Job didn't. That's such a great example. He was a human like you and me. He wasn't even Jesus that was the God man. He was just a man. And he passed the test. His faith was proven. And I pray that though hardship comes in your life, faith will be proven to you as well. As we transition to this text, we call it Wisdom Proved. This is kind of the end of the series. Remember where we started? We started with wisdom defined. And in the book of Proverbs, we get to see wisdom laid out. That fear of the Lord kind of life. And usually with the fear of the Lord comes blessing if you live that kind of life. And it was all laid out there for us in the book of Proverbs. And then we transitioned to wisdom challenged. And Solomon said, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't work out the way that you think. And he became a cynic. And we learned from him how to avoid becoming a cynic ourselves. When life doesn't go the way that we think God promises. And then this morning... We get to see wisdom lived out in the midst of trial and tribulation. I think it's a fantastic text. We're not going to be able to go through every verse or every chapter, but this morning it's going to have movements. It's a narrative passage, so we're going to be doing lots of discussing about context and these kind of things. And the first movement is going to be the man, like Job himself. And then the second movement is going to be the meeting. And there's going to be lots of questions about the meeting and what's this going on between God and Satan and this divine council. Listen, I don't have all the answers. Just shoot it straight with you. But after we look at the man and the meeting, we're going to be talking about the message which means how does that apply from Job's life through Christ into your, into your life today? So let's start with the man Job. We learn about him in these first five verses that he was from somewhere, the place called Uz, that he had a family, that he had great wealth, and most importantly, we learn about his character. You ask, well, pastor, where is this region or city or nation of Uz? I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> scholars don't know either. The best guess is Edom. Did that help anybody this morning? Edom? No, <laughs> we don't have that on a map today. It's the modern day place called Jordan. And we don't know much about Job. We know his name. And in Hebrew, have you ever studied what the name Job means in Hebrew? It means adversary. Right? Makes you want to scratch it. What do you mean adversary? Well, I think what the Hebrew is trying to tell you is that he's not the adversary, but he faces an adversary, Satan, who brings adversity to his life. And now that describes Job really well. We learn that he had seven sons and three daughters, a complete number making ten. He was a satisfied man. Part of his satisfaction came from his wealth. Read about his wealth with me. Something like 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. I mean, you had to be royalty almost to own but more than a few camels. He had 3,000, 500 yoke of cattle. Like, what's that all about? Why didn't he just say he had 1,000 head? We, he, he links them together, the author does, to help you understand that that's the plowing power that Job had at his fingertips. Basically, it'd be like telling you today, you had 500 tractors. Think about that. I don't even have one. I used to have one. Kind of sad it's not here anymore. But if you had 500 tractors, you could till up a lot of land. But he's not done describing him. He says he even had 500 female donkeys. I love the focus there because it shows that he can have many, many more. And on top of the perfect amount of children, the shocking amount of livestock, it tells us he had what I would describe as a whole lot of servants. Servants with all of his livestock and probably servants that served all of his children. But look at his character in verse 2. I mean, in verse 1, we see two pair of faith descriptors. 
It says he was blameless and upright, and then he also feared God and turned away from evil. You don't see those terms used about very many characters in the Old Testament or the New. Can you think of a term that would be called blameless or something that would be associated with blameless in the Old Testament? You don't have to think very far and you're, you're going to come to the image of a blameless lamb or a blameless sacrifice to be presented as worthy to the Lord. And I think that that was Job's life to a T. He saw his life as worthy to be used by God for great prosperity or to be taken from him with the hand of God to be sacrificed for his glory. He was not perfect, but he was blameless and upright, meaning that he had high personal character. This term, feared the Lord. That's really what the wisdom series is all about. The beginning of wisdom, it tells us in Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord. Meaning at the top of his list of things that he respected and looked to was God. He served the Lord. Now, you're going to hear these terms and blameless and upright and fear in the Lord, and your brain's going to want to say something like, well, was Job perfect? No, he wasn't. He was still a man. And if you wonder if he was still a man, you just have to travel to chapter 42 of Job and see that he repented. And if you repent, that means you have sinned. So no, he wasn't a perfect man. There was only one perfect man to live in the flesh. His name was Jesus Christ. But Job was wise, and I believe that's why he was included in what we call the wisdom literature. He even made sacrifices for his own family. Look there at verse 4. It says he consistently or constantly made sacrifices on behalf of his families, on behalf of his family, for things that they might be doing. This kind of helps you place the timeline of Job, because a lot of people are like, when was it written? We honestly don't know. It had to be sometime after Genesis 1 through 11 in the creation account, but it is also before the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system was established, probably before the patriarchs. And so somewhere in that time period, we know that there was no priest around because Job made sacrifices as the priest of his home for his own family. So it's truly an ancient book. Maybe one of the most ancient we have. Maybe of all of them, maybe except for Genesis, the oldest book. But he was truly a wise man. And that's what you don't want to miss. Now that we've talked about the man, a man worthy of respect, a man have high character. Now we get to see his character tested. And it starts with this meeting. If you look from verse 6 on through the rest of chapter 1, and then a similar meeting occurs in chapter 2, you're going to find something very interesting. It says that the sons of God, I don't know. Right, maybe some kind of angelic divine beings had a meeting, a, a divine council, if you will, with the Lord God creator of the universe. And it says that the Satan was there. Notice the definite article, the Satan. What does Satan mean? It just means accuser. But the Hebrew author is going out of his way to tell you it was no ordinary accuser at this divine council. It was the accuser. It was Satan himself. And no, I don't know why Satan was there. But I do know, though I don't know a lot about the meeting, I know that the meeting happened because this is God's divinely inspired word. And I'd also like to add this. I think it's pretty cool that we get to peer through the window of this meeting between the God of the universe and the enemy that we still all face. And what occurred in this meeting? Well, it starts with God asking some questions. God looks at Satan, the accuser, and he says, hey, where'd you come from? Pause. 
Did the Lord omniscient God king of all that's ever been and all that ever will be? Do you think he already knew the answer to that question? Yeah, of course they did. He's God. But he asked it anyway. And I love how the accuser answers almost sarcastically. He was like, well, it's a non-answer. I've been here and there and everywhere roaming the earth. And this next part, I mean, you just can't miss it. He's like, have you met Job? Right? I mean, he's like, let me turn your attention to my servant Job, my faithful one. Now, who do you think's playing who here? It's not Satan playing God. God is God. And I think God is wooing Satan into his trap. He's like, notice how blameless my servant is. All right, Satan's licking his chops. So I'll show you blameless. Look how good and faithful my servant is. He's like, yeah, he's only faithful. And here's where the accusations come. He's only faithful, Lord God King, because you blessed him with wealth and this perfect family. He goes, you take all that away and I promise you, here's the challenge to God, Job will curse you to your face. God says, I got you now. <laughs> okay, give it a shot. You can't touch him personally, but everything else you can take away from him. And do you know the story, right? We continue to read in Job chapter 1. Satan gets busy bringing Job very low, and it gets personal in a hurry. And we learned how much God allowed Satan to take through four messengers. Each messenger that came to Job was like a crashing wave against his soul. The messengers would come four in a row telling him, you lost all your servants. They were stolen or killed, along with all of your livestock, all of your riches, all of your wealth. It's either been stolen or killed. And then the fourth messenger was that tsunami of a wave that broke Job's heart as he tells Job, the servant that survived, that all ten of your children are dead. They were gathered together in your oldest son's house, and the house collapsed because of a great wind, and I'm the only one that survived to tell you. And Job broke. He stands up. Pause again. Please don't dare look at this scripture from afar. Like it's something that happened to that guy then. The scripture is not useful to you until it touches and changes something inside of you. So here's what I want you to do. You put yourself just for a second in the place of Job. Put the names of your family members and your children into the mouth of the servant as they come to you. Put your car, your vehicle, your land, your tractors, your animals and the names of all that you love into the mouth of the servant as he delivers this news to you. Everything that you've worked for, everything that you find joy outside of your wife and your God has been taken from you. Play. How do you respond? Is that a little bit more personal? That's the point. We look at this text from a distance and and I've asked myself this week, would I stand up and follow the path that Satan would think that I would follow and shake my fist and curse God? I don't want to, but I don't know. I've never stood where Job is standing in this moment. Job gets up. I think he loses it probably a little bit at least. Somehow the text tells us he, he gathers himself and he tears his garments he shaves his head, two symbols of grief, and he falls on his face 
and he worships God. Now, the first two things are are common, and they should be common in your life. Expressions of grief, though they may not look like tearing your clothes and shaving your head, though they might. I don't know how you're going to do with that. Grief should be expressed. Any counselor worth their salt will tell you, if you hold grief in during a major loss in your life, it's only trouble for you. Stop hiding from the pain. Embrace the pain. Let the tears come. Let the wailing come. That's what Job is doing. He's embracing his grief. That is common, or at least it should be common. But what he does next is uncommon. He falls on his face, and he worships the king of the universe in the midst of the grief. And what he does here in verse 21 that I want to read to you would be my recommendation to you, my greatest recommendation to you on how you could ever respond to great great amount of suffering in your own life. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 tells us, all this Job did, he did not sin, nor did he blame God. What an example. Was Job hurting? Yeah. Was Job grieving? Was he angry? Absolutely he was. Was he broken? You bet he was. But he never turned. Here's the key. He never turned from the God that could help him. He worshiped his God. And here's what he did, really. He surrendered to God's sovereign control over everything, even though in the moment he probably didn't understand anything. And if you could just get there, and your suffering, and your grief, bright days are waiting for you ahead. I wish I could start applying the text, but I can't, because the suffering's not over. The scene, this divine counsel that we see in chapter 1, it's basically repeated again in chapter 2. I don't know why the divine counsel met, but it did. I don't know why Satan is there, but he is. And he turns Satan's attention again to Job, have you considered my servant Job? Then he adds this in chapter 2, verse 3, who still holds fast his integrity, which means his true belief in himself concerning me and his true belief in me. He says, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause, that's what Satan wants to do to you. Not when you think you deserve it is he's going to strike. He might then, but on a small level, it's when you think you've done everything right. It's when you've been living wise. He's going to come to you and try to ruin you without cause. That's why it catches you so off guard like it did Job. I think God is in the middle of teaching Satan a lesson and it can be shared by all of us today. So Satan accuses him from a different facet of the accusation. He goes, yeah. He's stayed faithful this time. But if you allow me to attack him physically, then he will curse you to his face. So once again, the Lord God uh, allows Satan to sift his faithful servant. And Satan gets to work. Do you remember how the story goes? It's a sad scene here. We find Job this time sitting on an ashes, just another expression of grief, because that's all he can do is grieve. His children are gone. His livestock is gone. He has nothing left. He's still got a wife, but she's coming in soon. He's sitting on the ashes, half naked, bald. Everything is just weeping and in pain. 
He's got boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's writhing in pain. He's probably getting ready to die. But God says you can't kill him so he's not dead yet. And enter his wife. And if you're not familiar with this story, you're probably thinking, oh good. Finally, well, she's going to come in and really encourage him. Nope. This is what she says. Verse 9. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Oh, she's kicking him wise down. She's going for the throat punch to finish him. She says, why don't you just curse God and die? Wow. Thanks a lot, babe. <laughs> that really blessed my heart. It's probably crushed him as much as anything else crushed him. And here's what you want to do in the moment. You want to judge his wife. Don't hate her. Don't judge her. You can learn from her, but don't you dare judge her. You don't know her pain. Sometimes pain comes out with pain and bringing pain to others. You've heard this. Hurt people hurt people. She's hurting. All of her children are gone. She doesn't know what to do. And so, yeah, she makes a mistake and curses her husband. Let me get just away from the pulpit. This isn't going to be a major point. Can I just speak to you for a second, those of you in a relationship, especially your spouses? When you're hurting, sometimes your spouse is going to say something stupid if they're hurting with you. Forgive them. The hurting spouse is going to say things that are mean and painful. Forgive them. It's not, I'm not saying it's okay, but forgive them. Sometimes hurt people hurt people. And let me flip it around the other way. If you're the spouse and you come upon your husband or your wife on the ground mourning and they're in severe pain, don't kick them while they're down. That's not your job. It's not your job to look at them and say, ha, I told you so. No, your job is this, to love your spouse like Christ loved you, with a no matter what, never ending kind of love. You're there to lend a hand to help them up. You're there to pick them up and encourage them. You're there to speak words of life, not speak words of death. That's Satan's job, and he's already good enough at it without your help. Don't be a tool of Satan. Be a mouthpiece of God. Encourage your children. Encourage your spouse. Speak life. I can speak from a husband's perspective who's been down before. It doesn't take a lot of words. Sometimes when I'm, down, when I'm down, all it takes is a soft touch from my wife. A few encouraging words. And here I come off the ground ready to go to battle again. Support your family. But Job didn't have that support. And it's at this moment we're thinking, okay, he's going to curse God. Nope, <laughs> not Job. Instead, like the prophet and the priest of his home, guys, you need to pay attention to what Job did. He's a real man. We always look to YouTube. We're always looking on these Facebook reels and TikTok and Instagram to find these real men. You don't have to go there. Many times it's all a bunch of fluff and noise anyway. Go to the scriptures. You find Job. He's a real man. Look at how he responded to his wife. We don't hear that he stand up and slapped her. We don't hear that he berated her or talked her down. He spoke truth in love. He simply calls her words what they are, foolish. And then he instructs her with some of the greatest teaching in all of scripture. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. He instructs his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from him? What a question. I'm going to pass that right to you. Are we just going to be the kind of Christians that take all the good stuff from God and all the blessings from God 
and yet whine and abandon our faith when we face adversity. No, we got to take the good with the hard times. What, what Job is doing is an example for his family and as an example for you today. He says, I'm going to worship God in the good times, honey, and I'm going to worship him in the bad times. Inspiring is what he is. Okay, we looked at the man. We've looked at the meeting. Now let's spend our last few minutes together with applying the message. Message number one, application number one, when suffering, turn to God, not away from God. Like, duh. <laughs> I know it seems like a no-brainer. But here's what we do when the suffering comes as believers. Many times we start accusing and attacking God. And sometimes, because the pain is so severe, we end up turning from him. That's the worst thing you can do. And usually it comes or it starts with the word why. And I understand it because you don't understand it. I can relate to the lack of understanding. I've said the same words before. We say, why did this happen? Why now? Why me? Basically what you want to say is, why God did you do this to me? It's a fair question. I mean, sometimes bad things happen because you live in a fallen world, but sometimes, like in the case of Job, how can you argue it? It's right here in the text. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen to you. Sure, you can ask why. God can handle it. He's handled it every time I've asked him. But here's the problem with the why question. It doesn't always or rarely has an answer. And the why question can start creating doubt and unbelief in your heart and cause you to turn from the only one that can help you. So as I started asking why through all the trials and tribulations and suffering to me personally and to my family, I learned this. I may not always have an answer to the why question, but the why question's the wrong question. The right question is the who question because it always has an answer. Who is sovereign over all of your suffering? God, who's going to be with you through every ounce of your suffering? God, who has suffered with you and like you? God, who's going to be there for you? God, who can help you through it? God, don't let the why questions that are often unanswered and they still are left unanswered for Job cause you to turn from the one that's going to get you through it. Job didn't do it, and he turned to God, and God gave him the strength to endure. The question of why does evil exist is not an easy one, but I think because evil exists proves that God exists. Let me explain. When you call something evil, you're inherently, without realizing it, saying that there is some kind of good in the world to measure that evil or that wrong against. As soon as you say that, you have to ask the next question, where does good come from? The answer to that is God. So when you see evil, it means there is good and God is there. You may not understand why it's happening, but because evil exists, God exists. And we see that proven in this text again and again and again. God is not the author of evil, but he does allow it to exist for many different reasons, and I don't know all the reasons, but every reason has a purpose. And once you realize that that pain that you're in, that God has allowed, because there's no pain that came into this story, and I don't believe there's any pain that comes into your life that doesn't first pass by the sovereign throne of God, and it first passes by the sovereign throne of God, that means that God, your loving Father, who is good, has a purpose in it. And once you can see that there's a purpose in it, here's what you can do. You can endure it for your good and for his glory. 
What's the purpose? I don't know. I can only share with you examples from my life and the life of Jesus. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Was it unjust? Yes. Did it have purpose? Absolutely. To pay the penalty that you deserve so that through the power of the cross that's made accessible to you through the resurrection, you can have eternal life. I don't know what that purpose for the pain is in your particular life. It's your job to talk to God about it and to discover what it is. And even if you don't know, to let him help you endure through it. Because through enduring suffering, your faith will be tested. And a faith tested is a faith proved. That's my second point here. A proven faith is a tested faith. We call it the refiner's fire. And it takes on many different forms. I don't know every single purpose that God has in your pain, but I can tell you every time that pain is meant to strengthen your faith, not crush your faith. We do this with gold all the time and other precious metals. We heat it up. And that gold that's heated up, it melts down. What comes to the surface after the gold is melted? All the impurities. And after the impurities are taken off, we call it the slag from the top of the gold. What are you left with? Pure, tested, and proven Gold. We do it the same way with sword making. Think about the ancients of the Japanese culture who made these katanas. What do they do? They add fire to metal. And when it gets up, it gets heated up, it gets pliable. Then they take out a hammer and they hammer it and they draw it out. And they cool it and they fold it and they hammer it and they heat it up and they draw it out. Over time, this makes a sword which is stronger because of the adversity that it's been under and it's to be utilized in battle by the hand of its master. Christ. It got turned up for him at the end of his life, didn't it? The heat. He was pounded with fists and hammers and nails. He was drawn out so that he could be what? A tool, a sword to give a death blow to the enemy when he defeated sin and death on the cross and the resurrection. So the next time that you feel the heat being turned up in your life and you're suffering and it's going to happen, the next time you feel beaten up, realize these are loving blows from your precious Savior Intended to draw out your faith, not to ruin it. Intended to strengthen your faith so you, like that sword, can be used in the hand of God to preach the gospel to the world and defeat your enemy, the devil. This is God's purpose in suffering. We see it from Job. It's right here. I pray that God would help you see it in your life today as well. Can we pray? We're going to pray. We're going to apply, we're going to sing, and then we're going to take one vote today. God, we thank you for your word. And God, it's hard to say, but I even thank you for suffering in this world. I pray that that suffering would draw us to you, not from you. And that in that suffering, you would use it, though we may not see it for our good and your glory, that our faith may be tested and proved like Job's, and you would use us for your glory. God, apply this message as you will through this room. And God, if there is just one here today that has never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, God, maybe they're suffering. I pray that you would use the heat in their life to show them their desperate need for Jesus. You would help them to repent and believe. Yes, Lord, even today. 
We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, everybody said. We hope that you have enjoyed this sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about us or know what it means to follow Jesus, visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org.